Well, I'm going to introduce this morning's uh, preacher. I am not going to preach today, but um, Chuck Askew is, and he's right here in the second row. So if you'll come on up here, I'll introduce him. I just met him this morning, um, but you can read lots of information about him in your bulletin. You know that he's involved in campus ministry with college students, and it's not with Campus Crusade, but Reform University Fellowship. Uh, You can see that he started um, a program down in uh, South Carolina. You can see that he started uh, a program in South Carolina, but then was called in 2009 to serve at uh, NC State here in North Carolina. He has three children. He has a Master's of Divinity degree, and we're uh, very privileged to have you come speak with us here this morning. Let me pray for Chuck and uh, the sermon this morning. Father God, we thank you for your provision in the form of Chuck this morning. We are so thankful for him to come and use his time and energy to help us. And that's what we need, Lord. We need your help. We are hungry, not merely for food or wealth or possessions, but we are hungry for your word. That is where life is. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would fill us in the way that we need to through the preaching of your word this morning. Be with Chuck in a special way, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, David. Good morning. It's a privilege to be able to be down here in Wilmington. One of my favorite things that we do as a college ministry is actually take a trip down to Wilmington. Uh, Towards the beginning of the semester, we always have sandblast where we gather everybody up in Raleigh, we load them in the car early in the morning, and we truck down here and spend the day at the beach. I love coming down here to Wilmington, and it's a joy to be here with you today. If any of you are uh, curious about RUF or you'd like to know more, feel free to grab me afterwards. If you know someone at NC State that's not connected to a campus ministry, I'd love to know their name to give them a call. Uh, Glad to to connect and to serve however I can. But uh, as David said, our, our Goal here now is to draw our attention to God's word, to draw from God's word the strength that we need for life. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 121. And Psalm 21 is a psalm that is a psalm of an anxious traveler. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, growing up for me, I lived with anxious travelers. My family is a family of anxious travelers. To give you an example, oftentimes we would go down to visit family in Mobile, Alabama, and we would ride down with my grandfather. And my grandfather was was the preeminent anxious traveler of the family, and he had to leave before the sun got up. If we left after the sun was up, the day was ruined. And so he would want us to leave before the sun got up. And so that meant because we didn't leave with my live with my grandfather, we would oftentimes sleep in our clothing so that our mom could wake us up and throw us in the car to drive over to grandparents. And when we would get there, the car would be running, the trunk would be open, the doors would be open so that he could throw us and the luggage into the car and get us on the road. The only time there was a chance for a bathroom stop was if we stopped for gas. And my grandmother would make us sandwiches so that we could eat without having to stop. He was intent on that journey being as short as possible, having as much time as possible in case anything went wrong. One of the worst moments was when we were down in Mobile, ready to head back. It was the the day we were going to return. And it was early in the morning, and my grandmother was ready to kind of make breakfast, but my grandfather wanted to go. And so he got into the car, got his luggage into the car, doors open, trunk open, ready to go. And nobody had gotten into the car with him because we hadn't had breakfast. And so he began to honk the horn. 
at five o'clock in the morning, honk the horn. And there my grandmother is in her curlers and her, her nightgown making breakfast while my grandfather's out there honking the horn the whole time. And this, of course, affects me. I, I've taken that into my life and said, for some reason, I don't know why, I have to get up early and I have to go, which is really hard with three small children to get up and to go. It's really hard with a wife who doesn't have that same family history to get up and go. And I'm consumed at times with the sense that I've got to leave, even if there's no deadline, no time, no reason that I have to go. I just have this sense that I have to get on the road and leave. And that's hard because I can't control small children. I can't control their bladders. I can't control their, their needs. And, and that leaves me feeling ultimately weak, right? That's what our anxiety flows from, isn't it? It's a sense of weakness, that we can't manage and control all the pieces of our life. That there's things that we cannot control and we feel weak and we feel scared. In this psalm, the psalmist is, is dealing with those kind of things, wrestling with that aspect of life. That there's things that he can't control. And he wonders, am I going to be okay? As we reflect on this psalm, we're going to use three points to guide us. The three points are this, if you're taking notes. A troubling view. A sleepless God and a great keeper. A troubling view, a sleepless God and a great keeper. First, a troubling view. You may be wondering, all right, Chuck, why do you think that this is a psalm of an anxious traveler? Well, first, if you look at your Bible, it'll say at the top, right under the, the title, uh, it says, A Song of a Sense. And that's not something that we've kind of added on. That's something that's in the original Hebrew. When the original Hebrew was wrote, written, it had down at the top line, before my help comes from the Lord, before anything else, a song of ascents. And the best that we've been able to, to understand in our, our scholarship is that this is one of a group of psalms that the pilgrims would use as they would go from their places in Israel to Jerusalem for worship. At the different feast times, at the festival times, any times that they wanted to be drawn into the worship of God, drawn into his presence in Jerusalem at the temple. They would travel up the hills to Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms. They'd reflect upon these words to be encouraged, to be helped. And so as the psalmist is writing this, he's thinking of his travel to Jerusalem. And as the the many people of Israel, for for the history of the people of Israel, would travel to Jerusalem, as they would be in the anxiety of the journey, they would sing this psalm to encourage themselves. But where does the anxiety come from? We see it in verse 1. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? When he's looking up at the, the hills, he's beginning to have a sense of anxiety, a sense of weakness that comes from this. You know, we, we think about hills and we think about mountains. We think about tranquility, right? Now, of course, here along the coast, we oftentimes think of the beach as one of the, the top vacation destinations. But there on the other side of the state, right, they'll say that the mountains is a top vacation destination where you can come and look at the beautiful vistas and unwind and relax. But for people in this day and age, the, the mountains, the hills were scary. One is because they didn't have nice roads that you could drive up on to get there. And so you would have to climb the mountain by foot. And the the paths weren't the nice paths that we often have hiking. They were treacherous, which is why the psalmist speaks about not letting my foot be moved. He's worried about the the treacherous paths of the mountain. 
But not only that, the mountains were the places that oftentimes robbers would live. They were the, the bad parts of town, right? We see this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You may not have realized it, but the parable of the Good Samaritan starts with the, the man leaving Jerusalem after his pilgrimage and returning back home through mountain paths. And it was on one of those mountain paths that he was attacked and robbed and left for dead. As the people of Israel would look at the mountains, it wouldn't be tranquil, it would be fearful to think about this journey that is ahead. As they think about the robbers, as they think about the paths, as they even think about the sun and and all the aspects of the journey. Weakness, fear would come into their heart. And the psalmist is, is taking that idea and it's beginning to dwell on him and it's beginning to consume him. What's going to happen to me? Where is my help going to come from? And you and I may not be anxious travelers. We may not be looking up into mountains worrying, but all of us can resonate with that idea, right? There's all mountains in our view that, that bring a sense of fear, a sense of weakness to our life. All of us have these things in our life that are, are beginning to overwhelm us. And we wonder, how am I going to tackle this challenge? How am I going to go through this ordeal in my life? Will I be okay? Will I make it? Well, what about this? What about that? Will I be okay? Will I make it? You may be worried about your job. You may be worried, am I going to be able to to maintain this job or am I going to lose it? You may be worried about not having a job. How can I provide for my family? You may be worrying about a change in your life, a new school, a new community. You may be worried about your health. Am I going to be okay? You may be worried about losing someone you love. How can I live without this person? And you know what happens when you begin to think about these things that are seemingly beyond your strength, right? Everything else in your life begins to get a little bit more scary. You begin to feel a little bit more weak, a little bit more afraid. As though there's a chink in your armor that has been exposed. The mountains in our view oftentimes bring in a sense of weakness. Can I make it through life? Will I be okay? But the psalmist doesn't stay in his fears. He does something that should help all of us as all of us in a sense are pilgrims, right? Should help all of us as we reflect upon the journey ahead. He thinks about his God. We see this in verse 2 as he's dealing with his fears. He says, no, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. If you have your Bibles open, look at the way that your text shows the Lord. If you look at it, it's a little bit odd. It's a little bit different than the rest. It's got the, the big capital letter, but then it has small capital letters. And there's a reason why your text does it. It's to show that this isn't just the generic term for Lord as someone who has authority over us. But behind that, the Hebrew word behind that phrase, the Lord is actually the name of God. This is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses was at the burning bush and says, all right, well, who do I tell everybody sent me? And God said, I am who I am. That is my name. And that is the the word that is behind here. The Lord, the name of God, the name that God gave to Moses so that people could call on him. We oftentimes refer to it as Jehovah or Yahweh. And the psalmist starts by saying, all right, I have this fearful thing in my view, but I have something. I have a name. I have the name of God. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to start the semester with freshman move in. 
And so we gather a group of our students and we go over to the dorms and we meet students as they, they drive up in their cars to help them take their luggage and put them up in their dorm room. And we don't do this for us. We don't pass out literature. We, we don't even wear necessarily shirts with our name on it. We just go there to serve the freshmen. And one of the reasons why we do that is because they're new to our community. They're beginning a big journey, four years at a place that's strange, that's different, where they may not know anybody. And what we want to do is we want to show them that there are people here who you can count on. There are people here you can know. There are people here who will love you and care for you in your journey. And it's amazing to see parents. (laughs) Parents are the ones who get that. The students don't. They're like, all right, I don't have to carry my stuff. But it's amazing to see parents begin to cry when they see that there's a group of students waiting for them to help carry their luggage. Because they know the value of knowing someone on that journey. And you've probably experienced that too. You've been in a new place. You come to a new town. Someone says, here's my name. Here's my number. Call me if you need something. And you know how comforting that can be. And you know that when you are the person giving out your name, what you're doing is you're obligating yourself to service. And that is what God does when he gives us his name. He's saying, here is my name. Know me. Know me that you can call on me in your times of trouble. Know me that you know that I am here to serve you. The psalmist says, I know that there is someone I can call on on this journey. I can call on the Lord. But this Lord isn't just a nice guy, a friendly helper. The psalmist says, this is the Lord who made heaven and earth. And when he says that, he's just saying he's the one that happened to make the stars And happen to make the ground. No, when he's saying he made heaven and earth, he wants to to draw into our attention everything that we see from the second that we look down all the way to the, the top of our eyes limits. Everything that we can see, everything in our view, the psalmist says, is what this creator God has made. And so as he thinks about being on this journey, as he thinks about the mountains in his view, he can say, I cannot manage mountains. I cannot manage treacherous paths. I can't manage robbers, but... I can call on someone who made those mountains, who actually made those robbers. And I can take comfort knowing that I can call on him and he can come and help. As the psalmist is dealing with his own anxiety about this this treacherous path, about this journey ahead of him, he begins to do something to encourage himself. He begins to call upon God and remind himself of his character. But the psalmist is still uncertain. He wonders, all right, if I do call this God, will he answer? Do I have confidence to know that, that he will be with me? And that's why the psalmist begins to say, no, I have confidence because I have a God that doesn't sleep. Now, in working with college students, I oftentimes deal with questions and doubts and, and struggles that college students have. I've never once had a student say to me, Chuck, I'm struggling in believing with God because I'm worried he might be sleeping. I'm struggling in my relationship with God because I think he takes too many naps. I've never had a student express that as an issue, but the psalmist, for some reason, thinks that in the midst of his fears, in the midst of his anxieties, he's got to encourage himself by saying, I have a God who doesn't sleep. Why is that? Why is God's sleeplessness something that encourages the psalmist? It's because back in the day, that's the way that people thought about God's. Back in the ancient Near East, when this psalm was written, the the way that most people conceived of gods were basically as like humans with superpowers. 
You, you see it in Greek mythology, right? The, the gods in, in Greek mythology were, were like humans. They had desires. They would eat. They would marry. They're they basically like humans with the ability to throw lightning bolts. And that's the conception that most people had of gods is they had the same needs that everybody else does, just with more power. And that would make sense of life, right? Because sometimes you would call on your gods to help you and they would help you. But sometimes you would call on your gods to help you and they wouldn't do it. And she said, well, what, what's the difference? What's going on? Why is it one time they seem to help and the other time they don't? It's because they're sleeping. They, they can't help you now. They're, they're busy. They're, they're caught up in something else. We actually see this at one point in the Bible. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal were false prophets that would try to draw the, the people of Israel to worship this false god. And many people would go and worship Baal instead of God. And some people would worship Baal with God. But Elijah, the true prophet of God, wanted to show that this false god Baal was truly not a god. And so the, the prophets of Baal were up on a mountain. Elijah goes up on that mountain to join them. And he says, let's have a contest. You build your altar over there. You prepare your sacrifice over there. I'll go over here and build my altar and prepare my sacrifice. And then after that, let's call on our gods to come and consume these sacrifices for us. So we don't light the fire. But God lights the fire. And Elijah lets them go first. And so they, they build their altar, they build their sacrifice, and they begin to pray. And they ask their God to come and to consume the sacrifice. But nothing's happening. And Elijah, he's kind of a sarcastic guy. Elijah begins to do this. This is from 1 Kings 18. It says, at noon, Elijah began to mock them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And then they begin to cry aloud and cut themselves after their custom. So this is something that they commonly did to, to awaken their God. They would cut themselves. So they began to cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. If you know the rest of the story, you know that Elijah poured water over his sacrifice multiple times till it was soaking wet. Stepped back, prayed, and boom, it was consumed. The prophets of Baal had a God who slept on them. The prophets of Baal had a God that wasn't there when they needed him most. You know, if we're honest, so many things in our life are like that. That when we need it the most, it, it seems to fail us. We put our hope in our budget, right? And our budget works for us for so many times, but then it's always the month that our things are a little bit more tight. There's a need for our children and that's when the dishwasher breaks. We put our hope, our, our trust in our health, and we, we get into great shape, and then the race is coming, and that's when our knee goes out on us. We put our hope and our trust in our intellect, that we can think our way through problems. But then we miss something crucial, and it lets us down. There's so many things in our life that, in the midst of the anxiety of life, that we say, well, as long as I've got this, I'll be okay. Okay. 
and then it fails us. It sleeps on us. But the psalmist says, no, I have a God who doesn't sleep. So he says in verse three that that he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He repeats the fact that God doesn't sleep multiple times to drive home to his own soul. To drive home to those around that he is a God who is always watching, always caring for him. When we brought home our oldest son, Charlie, from the hospital. I was surprised that they let us bring him home. I mean, he was so fragile, so small. Why? Let him stay there till he's six. I think I can handle him when he's six. But no, they send him home with me. And, and, and that first night, I remember as it was time for bed, I thought, well, I can't sleep tonight. I've got to watch over him. What if he's on his back and he rolls over to his stomach? Or is it on his stomach and rolls over to his back? I never remember which one you're supposed to do. But what if something goes wrong? What if he's, he's coughing? Or what if he chokes? What if something flies into the crib and I have to rescue him? You know, parents, what kind of fears you begin to think about as you care for this thing so much. And so I thought, I, I just can't sleep. And do you know how long I didn't sleep? Like 30 minutes at best. I had a desire to not sleep. I love this thing more than anything in the world at that point. But I couldn't stay awake. But God, God is one who doesn't sleep. God is one whose attention is always firmly on his people. And I know as a parent, there's, there's these moments in life where there was just one second I turned away and whew, chaos ensues. There's never a moment when God turns his gaze away and misses something crucial. His attention is always firmly focused on his people to watch over them, to care for them, to make sure that he is ready to help them. You know, it's interesting. This creator God, this one who is sleepless, he came into this world, right, in the person of Jesus. And there was one time when this creator God, Jesus, Asked his creatures to do the same. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus goes into the garden. He's pouring out sweat. As as the text says, it's like he's sweating blood. Seemingly anxiety is pouring in on him as he looks ahead at the journey to the cross. He's being crushed under the weight. And he says to his creatures, his friends, his disciples... Stay awake. Keep watch over me just for a little while. And they do it, right? No. They fall asleep. But then the creator God, the one who formed, the one who holds their DNA together, goes and wakes them up again and says, All right, guys, I really could use you. Stay awake with me. Pray for me. And they do it this time, right? No. They fall asleep again. A third time he goes back to wake them up. And they're asleep. Now, if you were God, if you were Jesus, what would you do? Lightning bolts, right? (laughs) They were unfaithful. What does Jesus do in light of their unfaithfulness? Does he abandon them? Does he walk away? Does he wash his hands of them, say, I'm done with them? No. He continues on his journey. He continues to that cross so that on that cross, he can take upon himself their unfaithfulness to him. He endures the suffering that they deserve for failing to care for their creator God. 
as well as all of their unfaithfulness, all of their sins, all of their brokenness. He bears it onto his body so that he never has to send lightning bolts, so that he never has to turn away from them, to draw them back into the intimate relationship with the Father that Jesus desires, that the Father desires. That's important for us to realize that God's faithfulness is never dependent upon your faithfulness to him. Your faithfulness is important, yes, but his faithfulness to you is never dependent upon your faithfulness to him. And the psalmist wants us to see this. If if you look at this psalm, where is the condition? If you look at the psalm, where does it say he will not let your foot be slipped as long as you do a quiet time? Where does this psalm say that he will never sleep as long as you keep giving money to the church? It doesn't say that. Where does it say that that he will be faithful to you as long as you stop sinning? It doesn't say that, does it? Where is the condition in this psalm? There is none. As best as I can make it, the only condition that we can draw from this is that the eye of the pilgrim is on the Lord. That's at best. But even that isn't contingent for the eyes of the Lord to be on the psalmist. The eyes of the Lord are always on the psalmist, whether his eyes are on the Lord or not. One pastor in reflecting on this psalm says this, that this psalm corrects the mistake that all of us as pilgrims make. This psalm corrects the mistake that God's interest in us waxes and wanes with our spiritual temperature. We sometimes think that, right? That God is as excited about us as we are excited about him. So after those mission trips, after those retreats, we think now God is really going to keep an eye on me. Now he's really going to bless me. Now he really loves me because my heart is really on fire for him. But you know what? It's not true. It's not true that because your love has grown for him, that his love has grown for you. No, he's just bringing your heart more in line with his heart. God's faithfulness to us is not dependent upon us. God's interest in us doesn't wax and wane on our spiritual temperature. But it is always dependent upon his faithfulness to us. And that's so different than the other things that we can put our trust in. The worshipers of Baal cut themselves to get their God's attention, saying, look at me now. Look at me how much I'm doing for you. Will you love me? Will you pay attention to me? Will you give me what I want? But what does the Christian God do? He comes into this world and he cuts himself for us. He lets himself be cut off from the Father. He sacrifices himself for us so that we would know his love. So different than everything else that we can put our trust in. But what does God do in his sleeplessness? Is he just a presence there? No. The psalmist says that in his sleeplessness, the God is actively doing something. He's a keeper. He's a great keeper. Some of you, like me, may have been caught up in World Cup soccer this summer. 
I'd never watched the World Cup, but my son has been playing soccer. I've gotten more interested in soccer because of that, and so we watched the World Cup. And even though I thought that wouldn't be compelling to watch a game where only one or two scores happened, I fell in love with soccer. It was exciting. And and one of the, the heroes, like many of you, that I began to have is Tim Howard. The goalie for the United States, the the goalie who had 15 saves in one game to to keep us in a game far longer than we deserved. The goalie who who was known so well for his ability to stop the ball from going in that net that President Obama said, let's make him the secretary of defense. (laughs) You may know that in soccer, the goalie is a short term for what his job is, the goalkeeper. And the goalkeeper's job is to stand on that goal line to block that net and to not let the evil of a ball get past him. That's what the psalmist is saying that God is. God is a keeper. That's the refrain. If if any word is repeated uh, as a refrain, it's the word keeper. Multiple times throughout this psalm, the psalmist says the Lord is a keeper. The Lord is the keeper. The Lord will keep. And that's what that word keep has in mind, that that God is our God. God is one who is watching over his people. Standing between us and evil to protect us. The psalmist gives an image of this. He says that the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand in verse 5. Why would that be an important thing? Why would the psalmist of all the images paint that image? Well, if you think about it, he's on this, this journey, he's on this path. And if you've ever walked in the hot sun like you will today if you go outside, you know that in the hot sun your strength is sapped, right? So imagine a hard journey in an arid, deserty-like culture, how much that sun's going to affect you. And the right hand is the, the sign of strength. And the psalmist is saying that my strength will be sapped by the sun, but no. The Lord is my keeper, so the Lord is going to function as my shade. He's actually going to come between me and the sun to prevent the sun from weakening me on my journey. In essence, he's picturing God as like this this huge barrier that stands between the sun and the psalmist. And taking all those UVA and UVB rays that your, your doctors warn you about. So that none of those pass through to the psalmist. So that he can continue with strength on his journey. That's what God does. God stands between evil and us so that he takes it and not us. That's what we see in the cross, right? On the cross, Jesus taking onto himself evil. Evil that would cause us to say we can no longer come into the presence of God because of this evil. Jesus takes that onto himself so that we can go on the pilgrimage to him. So that we can be drawn into fellowship with God. You see, God desires that we come to him. God desires to draw us into his presence. And he will not let evil stand between himself and his people. And so he takes the evil onto himself so that we can come to him. This is important for us to remember. Because if we're honest, we oftentimes think that this life hinges on us. That overwhelms us. We think that this life hinges on our ability, on our willpower to, to, to do what needs to do. On our intelligence, on our strength, on our resources. We think that life depends on us. And the psalmist is saying, no, it depends on him. It depends on the keeper. It depends on the keeper who guards your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
My youngest son, Sam, loves his daddy, which is so nice. And he, he, because he loves his daddy, he has a crazy belief that I can do anything. I mean, literally crazy. You know, you ask him, can your dad do that? And his assumption is yes. And his confidence comes out this way. Wherever I am in a room, he has this urge to jump to me. Wherever I'm in the room, he can be uh, standing over here. I can be over there. And he's going to think I can jump and my dad's going to catch me. And so it, it makes me to be like a ninja, like here, shh, whoa, grabbed him, caught him. Thankfully, I haven't dropped him yet, though one day I will. But how did it start? This jumping, this confidence. Do you know how it started? It started in the pool. We went to the pool when he was younger. and The other kids were jumping in, but Sam wouldn't jump in. And so I said, Sam, come on, jump. Jump to daddy. No, I'm not going to jump. Come on, Sam, I'll catch you. No, he wouldn't jump. And so you who are our parents, you, you may have done the same thing. What do you do? You hold out your hand, right? Let them hold your hand and then jump. And as long as he held my hand, he would jump. And for a year, every time we were in the pool, he had to hold onto daddy's hand to jump. But then eventually, he began to get that confidence that I know that my daddy's going to catch me because he's never dropped me yet. And so I don't have to hold on to daddy's hand. And if I don't hold on to daddy's hand, I can jump farther. And so, daddy, scoop back a little bit. Let me jump. And then he would jump into the pool. And that built more confidence. The more that he saw that I was trustworthy to catch him, the more that he was willing to jump. You know, it's interesting if you look at the psalm in the first two verses, it's all in the first person, right? I will lift up my eyes. My help comes from the Lord. But then what happens in verse three through eight? It switches to the second person. All of a sudden it's you, you, y'all, you. What's the psalmist doing? The psalmist is switching to begin to speak to himself. He starts out speaking to himself about the fears and he says, all right, fears are beginning to make me scared. I need to talk to myself. And so I'm going to say to myself what is true, what I know, that I have a God who is with me. I have a God who is for me. I have a God who is going to keep me. And if you look at how the psalm, the psalm, it says, builds like a mountain, right? It starts out with just this idea, this idea that I know God's name. And then goes and says, I know that this God is the creator. And it builds. I know that not only is he the creator, he's the keeper. He's the one that's going to keep me on this coming journey. He's going to watch over me in the sun. But not only is he going to keep me in this current journey, he's going to keep my whole life. He's going to protect me. Not only is he going to keep me in this life, he's going to keep me beyond this life from now to forevermore. What's the psalmist doing? The psalmist is building the courage that he needs for life by reminding himself that his life isn't dependent upon himself, but it's dependence upon God. And that gives him the courage to leap, to take that pilgrimage, to move forward in life. And that's what we have to do in our life, right? Things begin to come into our view. Mountains that seem to loom that we say, I can't handle that. There's this sin in my life that that I just can't beat. It's going to consume me. This marriage, it seems like it's falling apart. God, I just can't do it. I know that my life is going to be wrecked. My finances, they're, they're falling apart. God, are you sleeping? Where are you? My life is going to be ruined if you don't come through. As we think about those things, we feel weak. We feel helpless. We feel out of control. And we must follow the path of the psalmist and say, no, 
God is with me. I know his name and he gave me his name for a reason so that I could call unto him. He's big. He's powerful. He's the God who created heaven and earth. He can help my marriage if he can make the sun stand still like he did once. And not only that, I know that it's not even that I have to begin to focus in on him. He's already focused in on me. Not that I have to do something to get his attention to come help me. He already is helping me. He already has a plan in mind. He already has a way that he can care for me through this. And the more that we begin to remind ourselves in our fears and anxieties with life that life isn't dependent upon us anymore, praise God, but is dependent upon him, the more confidence that you have to live a life in the midst of the hard, hard things of life with the confidence of my son, the confidence that I envy as I think about him, the confidence that we can leap and know that God will never slip, never drop us, never be looking the other way, but will always catch us. Because his goal is to draw us to himself. His goal is to make sure that that we are brought into his presence. And there is nothing, nothing that can come in this world that will stop him from seeing that happen. Do you know this God? Wouldn't it be so wonderful if he was true? He is. Believe in him. Do you know this God? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you lived as though he's true? He is. Have confidence in your life. Have joy in your life. Have peace in your life that flows from the fact that you have one who is keeping your soul and will not let evil come to you because he is set to draw you to himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word to know that these words are true will never prove false. We pray that we could live in light of them, that we could live with boldness in our life, joy in our life, peace in our life that can flow from your character and the hope that we can have that you will not allow us to fail to be brought into your presence when we are your people. Give us strength to live in light of these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.